Black Doctors Podcast. Season Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist, medical ethicist, uh, host of the Black Doctors Podcast. I am back for another episode. This is, I guess, the last episode of this year. So we're coming to the end of 2022. This will also, I guess, be the last episode in season six of the Black Doctors Podcast. Thank you for listening and tuning in to our sixth season on the air. I wish I could say I was bringing something crazy, new, and inspiring and fun for season seven and for the new year. But to be honest, I am drowning in fellowship at the moment. I came back after practicing for a couple years in the Navy to complete a fellowship in critical care medicine. And it's been a super busy month. In December, I've been in the cardiothoracic ICU. We've had a huge census, a lot of super sick, critically ill patients, a lot of transplants and other stuff going on. And on top of that, been interviewing for jobs and have barely managed to continue to put these episodes out. But fortunately, it's worked out every Wednesday or sorry, every Monday, rather, a new episode of the Black Daughters podcast has come out. So we're just going to keep maintaining. And once I am done with this training, so by June, you know, I'll have a lot more time to dedicate to the show and, um, you know, get back out there with some cutting edge uh, stuff, get the marketing game back up. So, so say once again, thank you for joining and listening each week and supporting the show. We'll hear a quick word from our sponsor and then uh, jump into today's episode. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. So this past week, there was an article um, that came to headlines, kind of blew up on Med Twitter, and it talked about something that happened in a bunch of different hospitals across the country. We've all probably experienced something like this to varying degrees, and it will affect us all in how we continue to practice medicine. This episode is going to be more of the medical ethics varietal, and we're going to talk about this article that uh, was entitled, Major Trustee, Please Prioritize. It's in quotes, and how NYU's ER favors the rich. This was published in the New York Times. It talks explicitly about the emergency medicine department at NYU. Uh, Everything that I say or mention will be in the article. Um, Don't sue me. I'm not making assumptions or accusing NYU of anything. I'm just kind of using this article as a launching point for today's conversation because I think it's relevant to a lot of the things that we see in practice medicine. As we get started, you can visit our website, www.theblackdarterspodcast.com. You can click on the share the mic link to add your voice to this conversation, which we'll probably add in like a follow-up episode or whatever. And you can answer the question prompt basically asking about what's your experience with VIP patients, how do you treat them, and if you have any anonymized stories you'd like to share. So it's not likely a foreign concept to many of us, 
especially depending on the hospital system you work at. I remember some hospital systems I've worked at, you'll have the gold bar in Epic, yellow bar, whatever, and it signifies that this is a VIP patient. Who determines that is up to the individual hospital system, but typically these patients have donated a lot of money to the sum of millions of dollars. These patients are related to hospital administration or university um, administration or just some high-profile visitors. Maybe they're famous, they're actors, they're athletes. And you have that designation on their chart saying that they are a VIP patient. Depending on your role in the healthcare system, if you are a medical student or a resident or whatever, then it's probably already decided by the time it comes to you. You know, you didn't probably put that gold bar on their chart. It just shows up. Boom. Now you got to figure it out. Maybe if you're a little higher up, um, you'll know that these VIP patients are coming in or know what it takes to become a VIP patient. But from my perspective, I really haven't been on this the end of designating people to be VIPs. But we've all probably dealt with these VIP patients. And this article in the New York Times really just exposes a lot of stuff that goes on. And NYU was the target for this, but there's, you know, hospitals across the country that engage in the same similar behavior, worse behavior. So, you know, this isn't just talking about NYU. So basically this article breaks down how different VIP folks, big time donors, friends and family of board members would, you know, be able to text a private line, let people know that they're coming into the hospital and they would then receive preferential treatment being treated. They mentioned uh, uh, ER Bay 20, where they would put these patients, they'd be seen right away, they'd get rooms faster. And again, if you've worked in different hospital systems, you've probably seen some similar behavior. We'll dig into a little bit about the ethics involved with this. You know, what is the problem, first of all, the the preferential treatment, the different standards of care um, is some of the big things that can happen where you have other patients that are not VIPs. There's the regular patients that go to the ER for care. And we know that the patients that seek care in the emergency department are oftentimes patients that do not have a primary care physician that they see routinely. They don't have um, regular scheduled doctor's visits, they come to the ER as their form of primary care. You don't have to have insurance to be seen in the ER, so it's a safety net for people that can otherwise uh, not receive the care that they so desperately need. So when you add to the mix these VIP patients that just come in and jump to the head of the line, they're taking resources away from these people that are under-resourced, that this is their only shot at receiving this health care. Preferential treatment. So that's, that's one big thing that's that's the problem. This directly can contribute to different standards of care and health care uh, disparities, where you're taking resources away or delaying resources to this uh, underserved patient population to go to the, the VIP. Also, there can be a different standard of care. You see some person, you know, with a sore knee, you're just going to give them some Motrin and send them home. Well, if it's a big-time donor or an actor, you're going to do a full workup, complete with MRI, et cetera. So these different standards of care do exist and can significantly impact your practice and change the quality of care that patients are receiving. 
This problem, like I mentioned several times, it doesn't just exist at NYU. It exists at hospitals across the country. It exists in private groups. I mean, from jump, you could talk about private groups that are kind of more in tune to billing and finances versus the public hospitals that are, you know, they're, they receive tax breaks and their mission and duty is to provide care for those that, you know, are underinsured or lack insurance or have no other means to pay these safety net hospitals, et cetera, like NYU is. And these hospitals that, you know, don't necessarily depend on the insurance, sure, they're going to take all comers. But then you you almost have this baked in to those private groups that obviously they're, they're a business, you have partners, and as a private practice internist or orthopedic surgeon, you need to make that profit margin to feed your family, to take care of your office staff, et cetera. And you're going to be more in tuned to the insurance that your patients are bringing. If they can't afford your services, you know, different re- insurances reimburse at different rates, with I think the lowest being your Medicare, Medicaid patients that reimburse at an extremely low level. I think that reimbursement actually just got cut in this newest iteration of the budget. So um, to the point that doing surgery on some patients with Medicare or Medicaid, your group may lose money versus going with a private insurer, Blue Cross Blue Shield, or or something you know that pays a better your group can make a lot more money or at least break even or cut a profit, right? So it comes down to payer mix. And we see the whole time with anesthesia groups. I'm an anesthesiologist. So you have groups that are in wealthier areas. They have a better payer mix. Those groups tend to do very well. You can go to groups at the underserved areas or at community hospitals, community access hospitals. And oftentimes that anesthesia group is not profitable because they're going to be billing anesthesia they're going to be building Medicare, Medicaid for anesthesia. And so the hospital actually has to provide a supplement to pay for their anesthesiologist, their anesthesia staff to ensure that they can continue to provide care to these patients. So that segregation occurs, right, from a private group to a public hospital. This was even um, present in the military, these different standards of care. I practiced for four years in the military. So there's actually a whole... um, I can't think of the name. It wasn't VIP medicine. It was, ex- I think it was called the executive medicine branch of the military where you have these high ranking officers. Um, I, di- I learned this in the military. So if you're like a, they call them flag, flag rank officer, which is starts at um, 010, what's it? 06, 07. So after like a, a colonel or a captain in the Navy or Army, well, sorry, a, a colonel in the, Army and Air Force, full bird colonel, or a captain in the Navy is the 06 rank. The next up is 07. That's when you become an admiral or a general. And as you progress up that pathway, you actually get your own like attache, your own person that just makes your appointments and drives you around. You have your own chef, always like little perks, but you also get your own kind of medical staff and there's this executive medicine branch that provides care exclusively for you. Obviously the president of the United States has his own physician, um, has his own medical team. You go to DC or the Hill, there's different groups of physicians that are taking care of those folks. So you see there's levels to medicine as a point, um, as opposed to the boots on the ground, lower ranking troops that, you know, they're, primary care physician isn't even a physician. It's probably like a medic or somebody. And once that medic has exhausted their medical knowledge, they're going to, you know, refer to like a 
general practice physician, a flight doc, a general medical officer, whatever, and they're going to try to get into uh, see the actual doctor. So there's definite levels in care that already exist. We, we know that. Um, so it's, it's interesting to highlight these disparities, especially as you're seeing at a huge academic center in downtown New York. I think about, you know, we can probably all think about the different patients that we've taken care of that were VIPs. I've taken care of a number of VIPs, folks that were big time donors to different hospitals that I've been at. Probably, you know, and I'm not very easily impressed, but I think there's, you know, some times where you do treat patients that you are like extremely impressed with. Maybe your favorite actor walks through the door and, or maybe, you know, your parent's friend comes in and there's an internal dilemma or a question, like, how do you treat that person? Do you treat them the same as everybody else? And I think, you know, as I sat down and thought about this, there's a couple different things. There's one, the, the clinical practice. We should be providing the same standard of care based upon our medical training, um, based upon evaluating these patients as individuals, as individual patients that we're seeing. But I think the other part of this is uh, would, would kind of come under professionalism and how do you interact with these patients? So if I'm interacting with a 17-year-old kid that you know, broke his arm skateboarding, I'm probably going to be a little more casual. I'm going to relate more to that kid as compared to the president of the United States if they came to my operating room and I was providing anesthetic. So I think for myself, it would be a different level of professionalism, but it would be the same medicine. I would still perform a pre-anesthetic evaluation. I would provide the same medication, the same anesthetic that's tailored to that patient's needs. Um, as I think about you know myself, how do I treat these patients, these quote-unquote VIPs? And I, I always say tongue-in-cheek, all, all of our patients are VIPs. I provide the same standard of care to everyone that I, I am fortunate enough to treat. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I wanted to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors Podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. Um, then I think about you know, different standards in residency education, right? Because we have residency, resident clinics, you know, what patients are they seeing in the resident clinic? Are they seeing staff members, faculty members? Are they seeing patients with private insurance? Or are they seeing people that are underinsured and have um, less, less healthcare literacy? That's a situation that's been long running, you know, different hospital systems treat this situation very differently. But if you look around, you know, that's very telling and in essence could be a surrogate for what NYU is doing so blatantly. They're selecting and, and allegedly calling, you know, people are calling ahead and saying this is a VIP. Meanwhile, a lot of residency programs are saying this patient population will be seen in resident-run clinics. 
versus, um, you know, seeing by attendings? And, you know, what level of supervision are you providing to those residents? Because, you, you know, everybody needs to learn. We're all going to be, you know, learners at some point and residents are physicians, but they should be supervised. So if your hospital is not appropriately supervising these residents that are seeing these patients, then they are providing a different level of care. I think that's how I've been able to come to grips with that in in my mind. You know, me supervising my residents should provide essentially the same level of care as if I was doing the anesthetic or the procedure myself. And then I would lean back on that professionalism and kind of clinical judgment because there are certain patients that you would say this is not a residency, a resident patient. This is not a teaching case. So I thought to myself, you know, what does that mean, a teaching case versus a non-teaching case? And it's one thing to say this is a VIP and therefore I will do an attending only anesthetic. That is probably a little bit flawed uh, once you if you dig into that. You are providing a different level of care because you want that resident to train on everybody else, but not on this quote unquote VIP. But I think the clinical judgment comes into play where, say, you have a medical malpractice lawyer whose uh, partner comes in to deliver, they have an epidural placed. Do I want the stress of that person's profession to um, cloud the judgment or stress out the resident that I'm working with? Or do I, as an attending, step in and take on the uh, responsibility of performing that task to spare the resident of, of the stress? And we can do something where the stakes aren't as high, where you may not feel as pressured. Same thing with uh, the President of the United States or somebody that I think may unduly influence the resident's judgment, um, may make them very nervous, more prone to make mistakes. Then I think there's a bit of professionalism and clinical judgment there that says, hey, step back. I'll just do this because that way if something goes wrong, that's on me as the attending. So I think, you know, that's how I rationalize it. And that's how it makes sense, at least in my head. The one person that I've like really just been enamored with or, or in awe of when I was in the Navy, I had a patient come through. They were a member of Naval Special Warfare and they were flag ranked. So they were um, an admiral. And just being in this person's presence was like just awe-inspiring because they were older. They just, you just knew that they'd seen so much, like the national secrets the things that have been done for better or for worse um, and that they'd attained this rank that was so high. And then they had friends come in is always like top secret kind of spooky stuff. But yeah, my resident did the, the, the nerve lock for that patient. And because I trusted the resident resident was an extension of me. Um, but that's how I would rationalize, you know, who do I, have the resident treat versus who do I step in and take over? So it would be kind of a, a slightly different level of care, but I think the motivation also makes a difference in explaining that to that learner that I'll do this because I just don't want you to take the risk or, or be stressed out or feel unduly pressured. I think that's partly our responsibility as attendings and, and chief residents or whatever the case may be. So again, the problem we talked about different preferential treatment and these different standards of care. You know, I don't think the preference obviously the preferential treatment should not exist. This should maintain the same standard of care. And next, you know, I want to talk about the stakeholders in this. 
because there's quite a few different people involved. And I think looking at this from their perspectives, different perspectives will help. So number one is the perspective of the patient. You have uh, an emergency department full of patients that are in varying levels of sickness. Some patients have a cough or a cold. They can wait to be seen. Everybody's time is valuable at baseline, right? So jumping a VIP to the front of the line at the very least says that their time is more valuable than this other person's time. Is that true? Um, in some situations, hear me out, I think, you know, with the military, you have very high-ranking folks. You have the president of the United States. You have senators. You have people who, I guess we could say, the end justifies the means that they, they need to be somewhere else and they need to kind of move through this system a little faster. Uh, but at the very least, you're saying that their time is more valuable than this patient's time. The Taking it a step further, it's worse that this patient is very sick, and now you're valuing this person's health and well-being over that person's health and well-being, right? That That's a, a tougher pill to swallow. Um, so that's from the patient's perspective. As a VIP patient, well, you, you say to yourself, I donated $100 million to this hospital. By golly, I should be seen um, expeditiously. I, I don't know. I, I can't fault them for thinking that. My um, potential solution to that would be just making it a, a full, you know, concierge type practice. At different hospitals I've worked at where there was the VIP kind of setup, when that text or whatever went out that this VIP patient was in the ER or headed in, well, then that patient's physician who was, you know, employed by the, the hospital, but was kind of under this little concierge heading, I guess, they would come to the ER and see that patient. So it didn't pull any resources, you know, minus the hospital bed, which, you know, at some point people would get an ER bed. I don't know what, how much of the line jumping that occurred, you know, but um, that person's physician who wasn't probably otherwise engaged in patient care because there's some senior ranking, you know, professor or whatever would appear from their office or wherever they were. They would come down, they would admit the patient, they would see the patient during their hospital stay, they would provide care. So you're not directly shunting resources from other people. The physical space, sure, but at some point, you know, they would have all ended up in a hospital bed. So I think having that separation of concierge medicine versus we're going to bring this VIP person in and then take these resources from everybody else to them, I, I think that's one kind of more palatable way to address these issues. From the physician's perspective, you know, you're getting a message that says, treat this patient differently. And depending on your hospital system and where that message is coming from, there's different layers of pressure. Anytime that I hear from a non-physician that he tells me how to do my job, I'm immediately digging my heels in. How dare this suit, this non-clinician say that, oh, there's a VIP, you know, because what are they looking at? They're looking at the bottom line. They're looking at their um, hospital rankings all those things that are that are financial and yeah they help the organization but as a physician i try my best to stick to the science and it's between me and the patient as patient physician relationship so having this undue pressure coming from one a non-physician non-clinician is a huge problem but oftentimes right as you have these leadership roles they'll be filled by physicians right it used to be these are physician leaders they did an MBA, they did whatever, and now they're the head of the ER or they're the uh, CFO or COO or whatever. And now you have a colleague that is influencing you to do to provide differential care to some extent. 
And that's a little bit different um, of a pill to stomach, but you should realize that, you know, there's some coercion because at least in this story, the New York Times, there was uh, this threat that you would lose your job if you didn't play nice in a sandbox and provide this expected treatment. So obviously that is is wrong. It's nice as a physician to know that, you know, in part it doesn't matter, but also like there's this factor of I know patient A will complain and patient B won't. I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I know this person that doesn't have insurance can sit and wait five minutes longer and they're not going to complain. Meanwhile, I have this um, parent of this university student that if everything's not perfect, they're going to complain about everything. So not saying it's right or wrong, but it definitely makes my day a little smoother if I just put them in this room, if I go see them, I make sure I, you know, have that extra level of professionalism and um, provide that outstanding patient care. Same clinical um, practice, but I don't want to hear any complaints. So I think that's like some of what goes on. We know what patients are going to complain oftentimes, and we can kind of do our best to, to avoid that. So I think that's that's part of the perspective of the physician. It's sometimes nice to know that this patient's a big-time donor. Maybe it's not. It shouldn't influence the care you provide, but maybe you know, you'll know you be a little more nice, I guess. Um, some of the VIP patients, the problem is that the, the, the care team will overlap. Even if you're being seen by their own concierge physician, you know, the x-ray tech that comes through and, you know, four in the morning, they got to take x-rays because this kind of happened to some folks that I worked with. I'm just going down through the ICU, shooting x-rays, and this particular VIP patient thought that they'd been like jostled extra hard, or maybe that person wasn't, you know, having the best day as they were taking x-rays all morning at 0400. And there was a complaint and that person almost lost their job and they're just the x-ray tech, you know? So if they'd known, then maybe they would have like been extra gentle, I guess, although they should be gentle with everybody, but such is life. So that's kind of from the physician's perspective and then the hospital administrators. And then we talked already about the other patients that you could be delaying their care or potentially delaying um, very critical life-saving care to those patients. I already briefly talked about potential solutions, whether that's, you know, having a concierge medical practice that uh, does not take from the resources that are available to all of the other patients. But when it comes to this access, an important question for me, you know, to determine is this ethical or not, is this other patient at risk for experiencing a worse outcome because I am changing the way I provide care to take care of this VIP? If you are in this system, and then and ultimately what, what kind of brought this to light at NYU was the ACGME. Uh, residents actually complained and said that this was adding kind of undue stress to their training, and they felt pressured to provide this different standard of care, and the ACGME came in and, and kind of um, uh, looked deeper into the program. I think they ended up uh, potentially suspending the ER program at NYU or some kind of action that made the university like stop and reconsider, you know, how they were doing this. So yeah, if you are in a healthcare system, you know, what can you do about it? One is, you know, climbing that academic ladder, climbing that rank structure to where you're in involved in hospital administration to where you can change these policies and say, we're not going to put a gold bar on these patients. We're not going to provide 
preferential treatment to these patients. If you're a resident or trainee, I mean, the best thing I could do every time somebody said it's a VIP patient, I would say politely, all of our patients are VIP patients. And if you say it enough, you're actually going to start to believe it. And you should, um, because it's absolutely true, we need to be treating all of our patients with the utmost respect and professionalism, um, despite what admin says or if they have a gold bar on their epic chart. So once again, what are your thoughts on treating VIPs, providing you know different levels of care, different waiting times? Um, how do you interact with these quote unquote VIPs? And if you could, you know, what would you do to change things at your current facility? If you want to answer those questions or be a part of that conversation, visit our website, www.theflightdoctorspodcast.com. Click on the share the mic or pass the mic icon and you can record your voice just straight from your phone or your computer or wherever. We could take that and then plug it into a future episode. Thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Next week as uh, a new year, we're going to keep going. You're going to hear some great episodes, some inspiring content. We uh, appreciate your support. We're here because representation matters.